Welcome to Episode 5 of Riel Opera Talk, a scholarly podcast on the Canadian Opera Company's production of Louis Riel the Opera. Sarah is traveling this week, so it's just me here today. This week, we are lucky to hear from three Canadian musicologists on their encounters with Riel the Opera as audience members and as researchers. Professor Colette Simino teaches at Brandon University in Manitoba, where she taught me in my undergrad. She shares with us some memories of the McGill University production of Louis Riel in 2005, as well as introducing a number of other musical compositions on Louis Riel that she has uncovered in her research. Professor Colleen Renahan is currently at Queen's University. Her research focuses on postmodern opera, especially in North America. She has a very thoughtful perspective on Louis Riel as an operatic hero, as well as the role of opera in nationalizing events. Colleen and our final speaker, Professor Sherry Lee, shared their recollections of the University of British Columbia 2010 production of Louis Riel. Professor Sherry Lee teaches at the University of Toronto, researches 19th and 20th century music, and is a specialist on the writings of Theodore Adorno. Sherry Lee made us rethink the provocative elements in this opera, today and in 1967. We spoke of the modernist compositional idiom that Harry Somers worked in being in opposition to the nationalist movement at the time. With all three guests, we addressed why we are hearing Riel today. How is it still relevant, and what can we as audiences take away from this historic work? First, I sat down to have a conversation with Professor Simino. Well, thank you again for agreeing to interview with us. We're so excited to speak with you. Could you describe your encounters with Louis Riel the Opera as a scholar or as an audience member? I don't remember when I first heard about the opera, but when I was at McGill near the beginning of my PhD in 2005, of course, that was one of the the productions that they put on. And it was put on as a sort of an anniversary for McGill School of Music. And apart from actually getting to see the opera live, which was really, really unusual opportunity, um, they had a whole series of interviews with different people. Maver Moore was still around then, so he was there at McGill. And there are a couple of other people there too. So they were talking a lot about the original um, production and how it was put together. So I think that really got my interest going. But... I have to say that I hadn't yet started my 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 dissertation, so I didn't realize that it would it would in some ways intersect with my interest there. Um, it was really pretty powerful to see it live, and I'm thinking especially of some of the staging because I, in preparation for this interview, I watched the DVD last night again because I wanted to kind of refresh my mind, and I remember the ending for the McGill production. They actually had, they, they tried to actually stage the hanging, and they don't do this at all in the production on the DVD. And that was just, it sent chills up your spine, and that's the very end. And um, so that was really, really powerful. And I think from that point on, Riel stuck out in my mind as that character who's, who's kind of possibly mad, possibly a mystic, and that's something that I've been sort of um, looking further into in my research because it's connected very much to what I ended up doing my dissertation on. Can you speak to Louis Riel, the, the man, the, the, the historical figure, 
um, and what makes him an operatic character? I think he's a great operatic character, partly because he embodies so many dualities. There are a lot of tensions inherent in this character and in the story, too. I mean, you've got the whole French versus English, Aboriginal versus non-Aboriginal, um, uh, that's sort of West versus East. So that is, is an issue there. And I like to think of the many different ways that you can interpret the character. Like, is he a traitor? Is he a patriot? Is he a prophet or a madman? Makes him particularly operatic. I mean, he was especially passionate and emotional. And you definitely see that in the opera. Characters like that make perfect opera characters. You know, somebody who's very logical and straightforward and not very emotional is not the kind of person you want to make an opera about. So his story, um, I think, is perfect for that kind of medium. And I know I look further on uh, into the mad scene, and it's pretty easy to write a mad scene about Muriel simply because he was so effusive. So he really, it really fits the, the operatic genre, definitely. So to tie off from that, you're listing some of the different ways Louis Riel is portrayed and the dualities of traitor, madman, prophet, patriot, mystic. How does Louis Riel by Harry Somers and Maver Moore sort of convey his character? With which of those angles do they latch onto? That's a really good question. That's actually one of the reasons I wanted to watch the opera again yesterday. You know, after all that I've been thinking about, I was thinking, in 1967, like, I find it so bizarre that, you know, in Ontario, they would have decided that this was a character to focus on for the centennial. And I still don't know who actually decided that. I mean, I know who commissioned it and all of that. Do you, do you actually know? In talking with Peter Hinton and some of the people at the COC, they've sort of uncovered that, through, I think, Eleanor Studley, that it's Somers and Moore that chose to use Louis Riel, partly because Maver Moore was in the play Louis Riel about a decade like before. Filter, right? Yeah. yeah, he was in the yeah. filter play. Okay. See, I thought that was it, but I'm also, I'm just so curious about, like, how it would be appropriate in 1967 for these, you know, central Canada, as they like to call themselves, characters to choose a Westerner, because not only were the Métis so not on their radar, the West was not on their radar, and, you know, I like to, I like to talk to different people from across the country and ask them, you know, how were you taught about Luriel in school? And I know it's totally anecdotal. It's not any great experiment, but you find totally different answers depending upon, you know, what generation that person is from and what part of the country they're from. And I know as Westerners, we're usually taught that he was a hero, also Quebecois. The Quebecers are always taught that he's a hero because of the French connection. Mm-hmm. But as far as I've heard, even today in Ontario, I'm not entirely convinced that, you know, students who grow up in Ontario are taught very much about Louis Riel at all, much less taught that he is a Canadian hero. And in fact, I've met people here in Manitoba who are um, of British extraction and older who think of him as a traitor. So I guess what I, I know I'm going way off from the original question, but I feel like how did this ever become you know, a topic for 1967's centennial. And I really am curious to hear about how it was received back then. And I think, so your question had to do with how he's portrayed in the opera. 
So I was wondering yesterday when I re-watched uh, it, is there a way that you can watch this opera and be against the character? And I think that by the end of it, uh, Louis Riel is really portrayed as a failed hero. But I do think that the audience is kind of, you know, drawn in to be sympathetic to Riel. It would be totally different if the John A. MacDonald character wasn't made fun of. I mean, I find the music that is attached to that character really sort of makes fun of, of the English, of the politicians. And so you are kind of um, made to feel sympathetic to the Westerners, to the Métis. But in the end, he's so clearly a failed hero that you come away with this, this, this tragic sort of feeling. But I don't think there's any way that you can watch that opera and think that Louis Riel was actually a traitor. But maybe I'm wrong. It may be just my own ideas filtering through. And I'm guessing that 2017 is going to be received very differently um, than 1967. So I think it'd be really curious to read reviews, to read what the critics have to say, and to compare that from 1967, if anyone has been able to unearth that. Because I know that, I think I was talking to Robin Elliott, or maybe it was Colleen Renahan, and they had said that it's difficult to get the archival material from the COC, so a lot of people are not really sure exactly what the critics did say in 1967. So that's one question I have about that work, for sure. Could you talk a little bit more about your work on the mad scene with Louis Riel? Where exactly in the opera is this uh, most clear? And sort of what did you uncover with that? Is it related to other operatic trends? Yes. Okay, so I did my uh, dissertation work on Poulenc's Dialogue de Carmelite, and I was looking at um, connections between madness and mysticism in basically 20th century operas, but I was focusing on that one work. And I started noticing that there are a few operas in the 20th century that have mad scenes, but these operas have religious um, themes. So it's kind of a, a, not a mad scene that's connected in any way to love, <coughs> excuse me, which is really typical of the 19th century, but it's a mad scene that's connected to sort of religious feelings or a mystical experience. And so I translated those ideas from the Poulenc Dialogue de Carmelite work that I did and looked at Louis Riel, because Louis Riel and Joan of Arc, by the way, are perfect characters, actual real historical figures, who did claim to have mystical experiences that they then translated into political action. And so in the, the opera of Louis Riel, there are a couple of different spots that I would say might... Um, be considered mad scenes, but the one I usually focus on the most is near the end of Act One, when he's in, I think, the kitchen uh, by himself sitting, and he starts to pray. And it's it's a very quiet, calm scene at the beginning. Um, there's almost no accompaniment, um, and he's singing almost prayer-like, almost chant-like. Um, but as he's singing, he gets a lot more worked up and he's basically singing a paraphrase of Psalm 18. So he, there's the aspect of praying, but he's connecting everything to his own situation with the Métis in Manitoba. And he's getting more and more worked up, and you start to hear you know, instruments playing a bigger role to make the piece sound much more dramatic. You start to hear his range going higher and lower, 
again, it's getting a lot more effusive. And there's a lot more melisma. So by the end of this scene, he basically falls off the chair because he's overcome. And he's, I don't know, grabbing his hair or something. There's a lot they do with the camera work in the version that we have on film that really kind of makes it look like, wow, this guy's having some sort of a, you know, a real experience here. But anyway, so he kind of falls to the floor and his mother rushes in and says, Louis, what's going on? And then he says, I just had this vision, you know, that I am David, this prophet of the new world. That's the main scene that I have focused on in my research. There's one that's further on in in the film um, that takes place in a church, but I haven't looked as closely at that one. And I like to focus on the first one because it connects directly to what Riel himself wrote about, you know, this particular vision that he had. So I think it's historically um, pretty accurate. Um, and like I said, connects to the themes, the mystical themes that he continually goes back to again and again in his writings. Great, thank you. I look forward to seeing how the COC changes that or keeps that sort of yeah. similar this year. Exactly. Something I'm looking forward to. So since you are uh, an educator at a music school, at a post-secondary music school in Canada, how does Louis Riel play into either how you teach music in Canada or into narratives about Canadian music history? That's a really good question. Um, as you know, I do like to use this opera in my Canadian music class, partly because it's, I can agree that it's the most well-known Canadian opera. Um, and it's a really important story in Canadian history. In terms of the style, okay, so this is a question, is there even a Canadian music style, right? I would, I would argue there isn't really, okay? If anything, we have sort of a, a globalized eclecticism uh, throughout the 20th century that you can see a lot in Canadian composers' works as well. Um, in fact, tonight here at Brandon University, we're having a, our, our big concert for the 150th featuring mostly Pat Carabray's works. I think actually all Pat Carabray's works because it's also, I believe, the 25th anniversary of him being here. But he has mentioned on several occasions, you know, we don't really have a Canadian compositional voice. Um, you know, we can talk about what different composers have done to bring in, you know, things that sound specifically Canadian, like folk song or things that connect to the geography, the north or cold. But I would say we don't really have a specific voice. Now, one thing I would say about Louis Riel is that Summers makes a work that has so many different things going on musically. Like he's got the real modernist angle for the Métis. He's got something quite different for um, the Anglos, almost like a neoclassical uh, arrangement, especially, you know, whenever you see a scene with McDo with McDonald. Um, but he also brings in some folk song, which is really interesting, not only because it gives you a different texture in the style, but he hearkens, like he shows us what some of the other uh, musical pieces about PL in the past were saying. Um, there's also some electronic music. So I think with all of those different things going on, it kind of embodies this eclecticism. It is almost could be called postmodern. I'm not sure if people use that term with this work, but I think that that would be completely appropriate. And actually, when you look at 
when you go beyond concert music and look at, say, popular music or even traditional musics in Canada, that same theme carries over. Um, popular music in the 90s especially was known to be um, not so specifically connected to any one genre. Um, you have people like the Cowboy Junkies or Blue Rodeo. They're not just rock or just country. They're like a combination. So there's kind of this genre mixing that you see very much in um, L'Oreal. So in terms of style, I think that the notion that there's no one real style or no one voice is actually really embodied in this work. Um, I've been thinking a lot. I haven't done, I'm teaching Canadian music right now, actually, at BU, and I haven't come to this opera yet. I don't want to do exactly the same thing that I did the last time I taught it, but I've been thinking a lot about um, the idea of decolonization and what that means. And I'm wondering if I can bring this work in to talk about, like, how, how do we talk about Lou Riel and this story with decolonization? Because I was, I was reading, actually, um, the, the Minister of Indigenous Affairs has said that know this anniversary really should be about colonization this is how we need to revision our country and one of the things that that i am interested in following up is that okay so at the end of the opera you really get the feeling you know he's a failed hero that's it that's the end this is a big canadian tragedy but in fact manitoba metis federation have been trying to actually get the land that they were promised in the Manitoba Act. And they have recently brought this issue to court. It's not a dead issue. So I'm wondering, um, I don't know what the latest is, but I am wondering if what Louis Riel was fighting for is one day actually going to come to pass. It's not dead in the water. And it's something that I think we need to be more aware of. That's really interesting. The, the idea of decolonization hasn't come up in our interviews, but uh, we have spoken with um, a First Nations poet who thought of the opera as a recolonization rather than a decolonization. And so these different perspectives are really going to, I think they're going to be voiced in this year yeah. with this opera's premiere or re sort of being done again. So I would totally agree with that poet. And actually, I'm wondering why the COC is redoing this opera. You know, because I, there's, there's that article in the Proctor book that I always have students read in Canadian music, and it, it's basically a list of all this stuff that was commissioned in 1967 to kind of show, hey, this is where we're at, this is who we are, and this is where this opera comes from. It's sort of an envisioning of us in 1967. That's 50 years ago. What are we doing, like, recreating this piece? I mean, I don't think there's any way to change it so that you're going to give totally new vision that is, you know, this is 150. Um, I would totally agree it's a recolonization. And what I hope comes through, like my mind is that this is a, this is a historical work. This needs to be seen as, um, you know, in the Museum of Historical Works. It does not represent current ideas about our history with Métis. And I... I guess my biggest concern with the COC taking this on is that they're sort of, you know, they're sort of glorifying it as this, this great Canadian opera 
that, and it, it probably is our best known, our biggest work, but that doesn't mean that we want to sort of reaffirm that this is what the story was. I mean, can we tell this story in a different way? Especially if, as I said, the Manitoba Métis Federation have actually gone to the courts and made some headway with the issue that Louis Riel was trying to, you know, get land in the first place. Um, one of the people that's going to be speaking at the April 21st symposium, uh, Jean Taillé, uh, who's a relative or an ancestor of Louis Riel, she is a, a Métis lawyer. I don't know if you know anything about her, but I think she knows a lot about this case. And I'd be interested in finding out from her, like, what is the situation? Because I think Métis are continuing to fight this. In the end, Louis Riel actually may get what he was fighting for. And this opera doesn't portray that at all. It portrays, this is the end, it's a tragedy, too bad, like, Métis didn't get their land. Um, so the idea of the decolonization is actually a great term. And I'm wondering if there's any way we can talk about this opera um, as, I guess, you know, what I, what I was thinking of, actually, in terms of bringing decolonization in, is I've been looking a lot into works that have been written about Louis Riel since this opera has been produced in 1967. And a lot of these works come from Manitoba. It's interesting living here, actually. You really get to the heart of, of issues, the Métis culture. But can I just talk about a couple of the highlights right Absolutely. now? Absolutely. That's great. Okay, well... First of all, there are some folk songs from way before the opera that most people have some idea about, like the two or three folk songs that actually are in the opera. And typically what you find is that the French folk songs are pro-real and the English folk songs are anti-real. Anti I mean, that's not surprising. And it's mostly folk songs. But you do get some other really interesting types of works, like there's a parody of La Marseillaise, um, that is a pro-real parody. So there's a Métis version of the Marseillaise, and that's super interesting. Of the more recent works, there are quite a few folk songs and pop songs too, um, but one of the ones that I'm looking into more today is actually an oratorio from 2013 by a Winnipeg composer named Andrew Balfour. And this composer is a really interesting figure on the Winnipeg scene because he was a part of the 60s scoop. So he was, you know, he's an Aboriginal person who was taken out away from his family and actually um, adopted by a white family. And the father was an Anglican minister. And it's, it's a really interesting, he's an interesting guy. And so he developed a love of um, sacred choral music early on. And he went to U of M and did a degree in composition. And he's, he loves choral music. He loves early music. And so he started a group that he often um, he often writes pieces for called Camerata Nova. And just in the past few years, he's been making an effort to find out more and more about his Cree heritage. And he's got a whole series of works now that have these... Um, themes, Aboriginal themes, but they incorporate like Western European art music, like early music, Renaissance sounds sometimes, choral music. The one that I am interested in is called Empire Etrange, and it's about Louis Riel, and it's focusing primarily 
on the vision, sort of this idea that, you know, was he actually going insane or was he having a vision? And it tries to, it doesn't tell a direct story. And actually, I don't have the whole thing. So it's difficult for me to talk about it with any specificity. But Andrew Balfour has said that he wanted to use the idea of the trickster spirit um, from Aboriginal um, spirituality to to show that maybe there's something else going on with Riel here. You know, we can't just stick with our, our modern ideas of what does it mean that he was a Catholic? There was probably something very different happening. But anyway, so he created what he calls an oratorio. It's really not a traditional work. He also has a couple of local musicians um, and songwriters uh, give him songs to incorporate. So there's actually one song in there that's part of the oratorio called uh, Bigfoot by John K. Sampson, who was part of the Weaker Thans. But it's so odd because this the song Bigfoot has nothing to do with Riel and actually wasn't written specifically for the oratorio. But it's about a guy who thinks that he saw Bigfoot and is making a film about it. So the idea is, you know, there's a guy who thinks that he saw this thing and the rest of us don't really believe that he saw it, which is what's happening with Riel. You know, he says he saw this vision. A lot of people don't believe it. A lot of people think, actually, no, I think we're having some mental health issues. And it's, it's so interesting. Um, anyway, I'm not going to talk much more about that because, as I said, I don't have the full score or anything. So um, I can't say a lot specifically, but it's interesting to me that he's focusing on this, this work, especially the, the part about the vision. There's actually a choral piece also from 1997 by David Lidov, and it's called The Vision of Louis Riel. And it, again, focuses on this one moment like the moment that I was focusing on at the end of Act One in Summer's Opera, the vision of Lou Riel. Um, there are others, uh, mostly Winnipeg, actually, writers, like Les Louis Boys. I don't know if you've heard of them before. They're a band that's been around for a few decades. Apparently, this is a bunch of guys who get together to play for the Festival de Voyageur, and they sing in both French and English. They have a few things online that you can find. Um, some of their songs are specifically about Métis, specifically about Louis and some of them are not. Um, some of them are just, you know, love songs or songs about their lives. But they definitely do have sort of an aspect of the Métis identity there. Um, another songwriter in Winnipeg named Christine Fellows has not written necessarily specifically about Louis but she spent a year as um, writer-in-residence a few years ago at the Riel Museum in St. Boniface. And I believe she got an album's worth of songs on the theme of Métis culture. And I think she was really concerned a lot with um, the female uh, members of Riel's family. So there are a lot of really interesting um, creative people working on Métis issues in song, in choral music, in you know even orchestral music. There's a lot of really interesting stuff out there and I'm really interested in these most recent ones because they tend to want to give an aspect of, of mystery, like leave an aspect of mystery there. Don't necessarily end with, you know, um, oh, Luriel was hanged. That's the end. He's a tragic figure, you know, was a failure because he wasn't necessarily in, in the end. Other people have taken on, 
you know, his ideas and have tried to make them happen. So, yes, back to the COC, I don't get it. I feel like they're looking backward, and it really does kind of bother me. And I, I'd like to find out why they did this, and I hope somebody will. Maybe John Hinton actually has talked about this. I don't know. But why not commission a new work? Why not um, do something that represents how different our country is? Um, more of a decolonized vision. What are you excited about about this premiere? We've talked a little bit about some of the reservations, but um, if you were staging this opera, what would you do differently this year? Well, that's a really great question. Um, well, I think one of the things that Manitoba Opera does well is they have a lot of a lot of activities and events around their productions to basically interact with the work um and that i would definitely want to see i don't know if that's happening i mean what we're doing here now actually is maybe a version of that i hope that there is something that the coc does that really gets people talking um i hope that you know they have some good reviews i hope that um they're able to bring metis issues to light from this to maybe um, get people to understand, okay, what's the current situation? Um, what was Louis Riel actually fighting for? What's happening today? And where can we go from here? Because it doesn't have to end the way that it ended. Um, there can be a different ending. I mean, not literally, but we can, we can change what the situation is for the Métis people. Next, we spoke with Professor Colleen Renahan. Our first question is, can you describe some of your encounters with Louis Riel as either a scholar or as an audience member? Sure, yeah. Well, I first encountered Riel as a doctoral student at U of T, um, writing about Canadian historically based opera. Um, so I was looking at two of Harry Summers' operas. I was looking at Louis Riel, uh, but also at his other opera, one of his other operas, Serenette. Um, so that's the first, the first thing, my first encounter with Riel, and I became really fascinated with it, and you know, with some of its complexities um, and intricacies, and and so you know that resulted in a few other writing projects about Riel. One of which was focused on his operaticism, just as a an historical figure, um, and the others about you know after I did an interview with Victor Felbrell. Um, who conducted the premiere, and, and so then I, I read a piece about the affective uh, nature of the score itself in performance. So those are two things that I've, that I've been thinking about from a, you know, from a kind of academic perspective. But as an audience member, of course, I've seen the television production, which um, I guess is now available on DVD. <laughs> and also I saw the UBC uh, production in 2010. Yeah, live, so, which was a really, really cool experience. Could you talk about that production at all? Yeah, well, it was, I mean, it was a student production, It was, which is highly ambitious, you know, as you know, um, and they did a really wonderful job of, um, you know, of the, of the singing in particular, because <laughs> it's a challenging, a really challenging piece. Um, they did a really wonderful job of, of the singing, and... It was evident, I think, in, in the staging of it, from my perspective anyway, that there are some challenges that the piece presents to the directors in terms of, 
you know, how to, how to interpret it, um, whether to, you know, take a purely historical perspective or whether, you know, there are ways to make the story, to tell the story in a way that is maybe more um, timeless or, you know, that has maybe some more contemporary resonances. And so that's something that I'm thinking about as I look forward to and anticipate this, this COC production. Awesome. Um, so how does Louis Riel, the opera, get invoked in the narrative surrounding the development of a Canadian musical style? Well, you know, I would, I think I would resist this idea of a Canadian musical style in a lot of ways. Um, I've been sort of thoroughly convinced by, by John Beckwith's um, sort of polemic approach to this, this issue. Um, and I think that, you know, in some ways, Summers' language has been interpreted in that way. So I can understand how, you know, why we might want to take that, that approach to it. it was, you know, there are aspects of his musical style of these, the dynamic envelope or, you know, these uh, long sustained pin, uh, pitches and, you know, the sort of barrenness of, of, the, of the musical uh, landscape, which I guess might be heard to be reflective of the Canadian landscape and all that kind of stuff. But I think, I don't know. I mean, I would, I would be resistant to that. And I think also in terms of the opera itself, I don't know that it's served as a prototype for other operatic compositions. It's a very original piece. So I don't know that it's, um, I'm not aware that it's inspired other pieces in, in its particular style. Um, so that's what I would say about that, yeah. As a music educator at the post-secondary level, does Louis Riel come up at all in teaching Canadian music classes, and how does it sort of get invoked in those situations? Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I certainly include it. When I teach Canadian music, I include it um, in, in, in those kinds of courses, and also in, in 20th century music courses that I teach as well. Um, and I think it it does a really interesting job of uh, presenting, you know, this this complex history, this history rife with, you know, cultural tensions um, in a musical way that is in some ways unexpected, I think. He does this interesting, you know, there's a really unexpected combination of uh, serialism and then some of the quoted material, which I think is is you know strange and, and fabulous and interesting in a lot of ways. Um, could you talk about Louis Riel, the man, and what makes him an operatic character? Sure. So, I mean, he's a very complex political and historical figure. So, you know, in, in that way, he's he's certainly got a lot of a lot of operatic potential. I think in that way. Um, you know, this, his, his complex nature um, figures in the various ways that he's been configured. And there's a book by Albert Braz called The False Traitor, um, which is brilliant and looks at the various ways, each, each chapter treats each of these various ways that Riel can be or has been historically configured. Um, and so, you know, he's got this, he, he's been configured historically in, in a bunch of different ways. And the opera, I think, plays on a lot of them. And given operas, I mean, it is a, a multimodal medium, you know, so it offers us these various, um, you know, uh, layers of, of 
um, representation, you know, for for this complex character that Riel actually is. Um, so, you know, he's emotional, very emotional. He's a um, he's a visionary. He's a religious fanatic, you know. And in opera, these these things are are normalized, right? I mean, I've I've written about this before, and that he's, you know, in a in a another context, this may seem strange and in opera it seems perfectly normal and the audience is invited to sympathize with him because of his his lyricism for example or his you know musical um effusiveness how does harry Sommers capitalize on some of these operatic characteristics in the character of louis riel yeah well his i think that you know there are three primary ways he does this the first is he uses this serial language which is Pretty interesting and, and very you know it's 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 complex so I think it serves Riel's character in that way um, it's also got these associations with hidden meanings and with a certain um, you know mathematical uh, thought though here uh, Summers uses it in a very uses uh, serialism in a very flexible way and so it's not as um, you know as um, sort of rigid as it as it sometimes can be so it's you know it's used in a rather flexible way um and then within the way in which he employs each of these tone rows in the opera he also embeds and focuses on at various points uh you know particular motives so for example there's this you know lonely leader motive that reappear, um, reappears throughout the piece so these kinds of things are also you know he's a um so the serialism in any case is um is one of the things that Summers uses to depict his complexity. And then the other thing um, that I would think of is, is this primitive exotic of the instrumentation that this is Donna Zapp's term, but you know, um, he resorts, Summers resorts to, you know, flute, um, tam-tam, you know, these um, sort of t traditionally or typically um, Native American or Canadian um, instruments in order to evoke that that part of of Riel and his and his um, history and his character. And I guess the third and probably most important aspect of it is his operaticism. You know that he's he's really portrayed in this lyrical, very lyrical mode, um, very heightened emotional um, mode, which again in opera is um, legitimized. Could you talk about the? ways that the opera contributes to historical narratives and myths of national identity? Sure, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that, that I got really excited about when I was working on the, my dissertation was Hayden White's idea of the content of the form. And so White writes about the fact that, um, you know, different forms of historical narrative have different um, capacities to, to tell you know, certain things, and that inherent in the form itself is a certain um, knowledge or way of knowing or, um, you know, that it already has this kind of content. So my question then was, you know, what do, what does opera offer as a form? What is its content and how does that, you know, make, how does that change what, whatever it is that, you know, is being, what kind of historical story is being told through opera? And so when we think about you know, music drama, music theater, opera, and it's, um, you know, building blocks and kind of try and step aside from some of the stigma surrounding those things. It becomes apparent that 
opera actually has a lot to teach us about history in very, you know, very different ways than, say, literary historiography um, does. So, you know, music, it's got music. Music is um, affected, is something that happens over time. It is processual. Um, it can manipulate the way we experience time and space and um, and it has the ability to create communities or to you know build or even reinforce existing communities which I think in the context of, of history and historical narratives is actually pretty significant yeah how has the reception of this opera and other musical works with Louis Riel at the center or other national figures sort of changed or evolved since 1967 and its premiere Maybe you could speak to the 2010 production that you saw as well. Sure, yeah. Well, I would just say that, you know, I mean, we've come a ways since 67, of course, and there are some, you know, there are, we're facing some, some different challenges or some challenges that have evolved in, you know, in different ways since then. But in some ways also, there are, you know, we still have some of the same struggles and you know so i think that the, in terms of the opera's relevance it is certainly still still re still relevant you know i don't think it's it's exclusively an historical piece so um, i think that's that's significant and that being said though i think the music you know is really of its time it seems to be it seems to, you know it comes from that particular time and it comes from a particular interest in in producing you know, well, an opera that is, you know, based on 12-tone rows, you know, I mean, that's not, that's not really done anymore. And so it is very much of its time. And I think in particular, the electronic sound is something that's pretty interesting. And I'm really fascinated to hear what it is that they do with this. That's um, exactly what we're wondering, especially me. I want to know what they do with the electronic sounds. Yeah, that's, it's going to be exciting. Um, what do you hope to see or hear in this year's production of Louis Riel? Yeah, well, I'm really excited about it. Um, I guess there are two things. I mean, the, the score is really difficult to sing and to play. Um, and I, um, so I guess I'm really looking forward to some great singing. And I think, you know, considering who they have cast in these roles, it should be pretty wonderful. So I'm excited about that. Um, the second is that, as I mentioned, you know, the, the stage, this issue with the staging. And I'm hoping um, that they they do something exciting with it, you know, that it's it's it won't be configured as, you know, a purely historical piece and that there may be some, you know, interesting things that tie it to contemporary issues or um, to some of the ways that these issues have since developed since 67. The interview with Sherry Lee is in the second sound file released today titled Episode 5, Part 2.